I greet you today in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. And as is my custom, I have placed on the back of the bulletin there an outline of uh, my message of the day with some blanks to be filled in. And I do this because I just believe that God will offer you an opportunity this week to share the message with somebody if you're ready, willing, and able. The scripture for the morning comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I'm going to begin reading with the 18th verse. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> How We Miss the Late Great Billy Graham. Some two years ago, he transferred from earth to heaven. His heart-piercing sermons and compelling syndicated newspaper columns had a clear focus. His message was not based on slick salesmanship or complicated theology. Indeed, his message, though very profound, was simple enough for a child to comprehend and was always faithful to Holy Scripture. His message was focused on Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, Savior, and Lord. In his autobiography, entitled Just As I Am, Billy Graham tells about a crucial lesson he learned way back in 1953. He was conducting a great crusade in Dallas in the huge Cotton Bowl Stadium. And he said that one night after the service, he just did not feel that the message had the usual spiritual depth and power, even though a number of people responded to the invitation. 
And so after the service was over that night, he went for a walk with his friend John. John uh, was uh, a German-born industrialist uh, who had recommitted himself to Christ at an earlier crusade in Boston. He and John went for a walk. And John, who was a good enough friend to be very candid with Billy Graham, said this, Billy, you didn't speak about the cross tonight. How can anybody be converted without having at least one single view of the cross where the Lord died for us? You must preach about the cross, Billy. You must preach about the blood that was shed for us there. There's no other place in the Bible where there's greater power than when we talk or preach about the cross. Now, at first, Billy Graham resisted that rebuke. But later that night, he couldn't go to sleep. It preyed on his mind. And by morning, he had decided that his friend John was right. And so that morning, Billy Graham made a solemn commitment never to preach again without being sure that the gospel was complete and clear as possible, centering on Christ's sacrificial death for our sins on the cross and his resurrection from the dead for our salvation. Today, sadly, most of, much of the world rejects the message of the cross. Even here in America, many of them regard it as just sentimental superstition. Others say, oh, the message of the cross is unreasonable. I can't understand all of it. I can't get my mind around it. And then there are still others who reject it by saying, oh, it's, it's crude, it's bloody. But St. Paul declared the message of the cross is the power of God for all who are being saved. In St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he sets up a contrast between the world's wisdom and the message of the cross. In verse 20, Paul asks, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And just prior to that, verse before, he quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah delivering the word from God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Today in America, the wisdom of the world has inspired certain myths or lies taught by our secular culture, inspired by Satan. The first of these is education can solve most of the world's problems. Now, the nation of Germany put the, the lie to that myth back in the 1930s and 40s. At that time, Germany was the most educated, the most cultured nation on earth. And yet that nation followed an evil dictator named Hitler into a world war that killed over 30 million people. Education is wonderful. We're for it, but it won't necessarily change the heart. The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Every person, you and me, every person is a sinner. Now, if you send that person to a doctor, he might become a healthier sinner. And if you send him to a psychiatrist, he might become a better-adjusted sinner. And if you send him to Harvard, he might become a better-educated sinner. But still, still a sinner. 
Today in America, earning a Ph.D. degree brings with it a lot of status, and it should. But it does not necessarily bring one closer to God. Sometimes, indeed, an advanced education may cause more pride than holiness. So much for the wisdom of the world. And then there's a second myth taught by our secular culture. If we liberate people from sexual restraints or restrictions, we'll spread happiness and contentment. Now, the, the past 50 years of sexual liberation ought to put a lie to that one. All the way from Woodstock to through Supreme Court decisions, uh, our culture has directly challenged the biblical position that the proper and beautiful place for sexuality is within the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. Consider in America the results of all of this sexual liberation. The clinical psychologist H. Newton Mabry reports that sexually transmitted diseases continue to rise in America and that alternate lifestyles account for 80% of them. And those alternate lifestyles also lead to much higher rates of drug addiction and suicide. And perhaps the most tragic result, byproduct, of all this sexual revolution in America is the fact that we in America still destroy almost one million little unborn babies every single year. So much for the wisdom of the world. And then there's a third myth that our secular culture tries to sell to us. It is this, religion enslaves people, but, and non-religious people are truly liberated. What a lie. The Wall Street Journal reported recently that Mr. Patricio Galvez of Sweden was in Syria trying to rescue his seven grandchildren, ages one to eight. They are in a squalid orphan's camp there. Their mother, Amanda, and her husband joined the Islamic State back in 2014 and moved there. When the caliphate crumbled in defeat, both Amanda and her husband were killed. Earlier, years earlier, Amanda had written these words in her diary. Like all kids in Sweden, I grew up as an atheist. I thought it was absurd to believe in God. But then a Muslim classmate challenged her to memorize a verse from the Koran. And that led her to start watching YouTube videos of Islam. Obviously, there was a spiritual vacuum in Amanda's life. And she filled it with a false message that led to her death. All of us are born with an inherent need to worship. God made us that way. He created us. There's a God-shaped hole in us that nothing but God can fill. But there's no law that says we can't try to fill it with everything else. A substitute God, and there are plenty of them all around. Money, sex, power, family, and so many others. In if I had to boil down what I've learned in 50 years of ministry, it's this. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy, and only the cross can save. 
Occasionally, I hear a, a so-called liberated parent say, well, I'm not going to train my child in anything to do with religion because I want the child to grow up free to evaluate all the evidence and come to his or her own conclusions. And whenever I hear that, I'm reminded of a story told by a great English poet, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Coleridge said that he had a guest in his home one day, and um, this guest was one of those liberated folks who said, I don't believe in teaching any child about religion. Leave that for them to develop later on. Coleridge said to his guest, would you like to see my garden? And the guest said, yes. So he took him to a section of his garden where nothing but weeds were growing. And the guest said, that's not a garden, that's just a bunch of weeds. And Coleridge said, wait a minute, sir. I wanted to leave that section of my garden absolutely free so it could choose its own production. <laughs> the human heart yearns to worship and abhors a vacuum. If God does not fill that heart, something else will, and it'll usually be selfishness and sin. So much for the wisdom of the world. In verse 22 of our text for the morning, St. Paul pointed out one of the danger signs of worldly wisdom. He wrote, Jews demand miraculous signs. The Jewish leaders in Jesus' day were always demanding from him a sign some big miracle that would dazzle them. Now, somehow they overlooked his healing miracles. The lame were walking, the blind could see. Evidently, that was, they were not impressed by that. They wanted the kind of sign that was a big political or military miracle, some huge sign that, that would expel those hated Roman occupiers from their land. Jesus told them that no sign would be given to them except the sign of Jonah. You remember Jonah? Spent three days in the belly of a big fish. Similarly, Jesus was saying, I'm going to be three days in a tomb and then rise again. In other words, the sign Jesus would offer would be the cross and the empty tomb. And sadly, there are still doubters among us who refuse to believe unless God dazzles them personally in some way. He's got to do something spectacular for them. Well, God does not play that game. The Bible says the righteous shall live by faith, not by being dazzled. The second part of verse 22 tells us that the Greeks look for wisdom. Uh, indeed, uh, there was an ancient scholar named Aristides, a contemporary of St. Paul, who said that on every street corner in the city of Corinth were so-called wise men who had their own solution, solutions for all the world's problems. Reminds me of the letters to the editor of the state newspaper that I read every day. Everybody's got an answer to the world's problems. The Western world today, America especially, like the Greeks of old, worships reason. Modern people are really impressed if they can reason through to a solution or if they can prove it by the scientific method. Now, while we are grateful for every bit of knowledge God gives us, and goodness knows we want more, indeed, I'm praying that a vaccine will be found soon for that uh, coronavirus. But 
in spite of all the wisdom of our world, our wisdom is so limited. Think about it. For all of our technical and scientific knowledge, did you know the smartest scientist in America cannot cause a seed to germinate? Can't do it. And yet that commonplace miracle happens millions of times every day simply by the work of God. God built that miracle into our system, and without it, we could not survive. Just a commonplace miracle. Even with all our vaunted knowledge, folks, we cannot really explain how one person falls in love with another. Try it sometimes. I mean, I know that my wife loves me, but I don't understand why. And I don't want to probe that mystery too deeply. <laughs> Everybody believes in infinity, don't they? Yes, they do. Because when you go outside and look at the sky, you know it has no end up there. Now, you cannot get your mind around it. I can't wait to run into some esteemed physicist and say to him, Sir, what's on the other side of the sky? And watch him mumble and say, we really don't know. That's infinity. And God put it up there so we could look up every day and see it and be reminded of the infinite one, the creator, God Almighty. Even with all of our vaunted knowledge, we cannot reason ourselves to God. And God meant it that way. We can never prove or disprove God. The only way to God is by faith not by proof or wisdom. As the Bible says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And that brings us to the climax of our text. In verse 23, St. Paul wrote, but we preach Christ crucified. And in the very next chapter, chapter 2, he adds these words, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, St. Paul was not saying that his knowledge was limited to what he knew about Jesus. St. Paul had the equivalent of a Ph.D. in Old Testament studies. Uh, he also read uh, from secular sources all over the world. When he was in Athens, he quoted one of the great Greek poets. No, when, Jesus said, I determined, when Paul said, I, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he was saying that the crucified Christ would be the central theme of his gospel. And it should be for us too. Now today the message of the cross is under attack in America, even within the major denominations, even within the United Methodist Church. There's one prominent theologian who a few years ago referred to the message of the cross, the idea of God sending his son to die on a cross for the sins of the world, this prominent theologian referred to that as divine child abuse. And then a seminary professor made this horrific statement, and I quote, We don't need to hear about somebody hanging on a cross and blood dripping and all that stuff, end of quote. And when she made that statement, the interdenominational audience gave her a standing ovation. At this critical moment, you know that our beloved denomination is deeply divided. We United Methodists desperately need to refocus on the cross. 
God's Word to the United Methodist Church may have been given over 20 years ago at another general conference, 1996. That conference was into its second full day of business when a delegate from Iowa, Mrs. June Goldman, managed to get the attention of the presiding bishop. And she asked a very simple question. Where is the cross? There was no visible cross either on the platform or anywhere else in this huge auditorium where over a thousand United Methodists were gathered. And Mrs. Goldman thought that since the cross is the central symbol of Christianity and is part of the official logo of the United Methodist Church, there ought to be a cross around. She said, I would respectfully ask that the appropriate committee place a cross somewhere on the platform so that we might focus on it. And soon a large gold cross was placed on the platform. I wonder if today, at this difficult hour for our denomination, if God may be recycling that message from over 20 years ago. Where is the cross? Is it the central truth of our life, or is it just a forgotten figment from our glorious past? Where is the cross? Because, folks, if our troubled denomination would focus on the crucified and risen Christ, rather than on disputes that should be settled by Scripture, perhaps we might experience an earth-shaking revival. Now, the message of the cross is so massive, so majestic, none of us can fully get our minds around it, but even a child can understand the essence of it. Let me try to describe it. God visited planet Earth some 2,000 years ago in the form of a man named Jesus. His mother was Mary. His father was the Holy Spirit. He was God in human form. The forces of evil, led by Satan, fought him fiercely. Satan reasoned that if he could destroy Jesus, the world would belong to him, including the souls of all the people. And so Satan and his demonic assistants conspired to have this Jesus killed in the most barbaric and excruciating way ever invented by human beings, crucifixion. But Satan underestimated God. God transformed this death from tragedy to triumph. In his death, Jesus experienced hell on behalf of all believers of all generations. In a divine process, deeper than we can fully understand, Jesus atoned for your sin and mine. He paid my penalty and yours for sin. Then by the power of God, Jesus was raised from the dead as a stamp of approval on that mighty transaction. And from that day until now, the risen Christ has been granting forgiveness and eternal life to everyone who repents and trusts in Him. That, my friends, is the message of the cross. When I think about the cross, I'm reminded of a story, a true story told by a famous radio announcer. The announcer told about a recent Thanksgiving Day celebration 
that he had with his extended family at grandmother's house. Some 25 or 30 uncles, aunts, cousins gathered at grandmother's house. And at noon, they got in a big circle, linked hands around this turkey-centered feast. And then said the announcer, grandmother made the mistake of calling on Uncle John to pray. And she should have remembered that Uncle John could not pray without talking about the cross and crying. And if there's one thing that makes grown people nervous, it's to listen to a grown man cry. But that's what happened. Uncle John started praying and talking about the cross and crying. And the announcer said that all of us just stared at the floor, shifted uncomfortably from one foot to the other, and prayed that Uncle John would hurry up and finish praying. And then the announcer added this incisive and disturbing remark. He said, all of us knew that Jesus had died on the cross for our sin, but Uncle John had never gotten over it. May God help us never to get over it and indeed to glory in the old rugged cross as our only hope of salvation. As I have prayed this week about this message, the Lord has told me clearly that I ought to open up this altar for commitments and recommitments to Christ. Um, and on the first Sunday of Lent, that's indeed appropriate. And uh, I have prayed that there would be some folks coming to this altar for the very first time, never been here before, to make a commitment to Christ. Uh, and you know, it's graciously simple to do that. Even a child can do it. And how wonderful it would be if 12 years from now, some 20-year-old would say, 12 years ago when I was 8 years old, I made my first real commitment at the altar of Mount Horeb Church. How wonderful that would be. And all one has to do is to say, Lord, I repent of my sin and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. That's it. That's the only requirement for eternal life, forgiveness, and salvation. In just a moment, we're going to sing our final hymn. And while we sing, uh, I'm going to invite you to come and spend a few moments standing or kneeling here at this altar. Uh, you, can you can offer your own prayer of commitment uh, or use this one printed in your bulletin. Jesus, you died. You died for me. My name is written on your cross. In gratitude, I intend to live for you. Whether this is your first time to come to the altar and make that commitment or your 20th time, each time is important. And even if you've been a Christian for 30 years, it really does help now and then to come down to this holy ground and renew that commitment. When we finish singing the hymn, the organist will continue to play uh, as long as people coming to the altar. So you folks up in the balcony, there'll be time for you to get down here and get on back to your seat. Again, this is the prayer you're invited to offer here. Jesus, you died for me. My name is written on your cross. In gratitude, I intend to live for you. Amen. Let us stand and sing, and I invite you to come to this holy ground.